Welcome to the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. Your one stop to learn about the technology that's powering the future of commerce. Here are your hosts, Dirk and Kelly. Welcome to another episode of the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. I'm joined here with my co-host, Dirk. Hi, everybody. And today we're very lucky to have John Andrews, CEO of Select. Happy to be here. So we're at Shop Talk, and we thought we'd use this opportunity to grab some of John's time. Um, I it was an old colleague of, of John's back at Oracle, and I know he's been working at Select now for a couple of years. And uh, thought it'd be interesting to have our listeners hear what uh, what he's up to. Is it's uh, it's pretty interesting tech. So can you start with the story of your career? How did you uh, how did you get to this seat <laughs> where, where I am today. Uh, it's a good question. Not, not necessarily a, a glamorous, uh, a glamorous path, uh, but uh, happy to happy to talk through it. So uh, I joined, I'll go backwards. I joined select uh, just a little over four years ago. Um, uh, prior to that, I was running the commerce product at Oracle responsible for the product roadmap, product strategy, marketing, positioning, go to market, uh, et cetera. Uh, and like most people at Oracle, I came in via an acquisition uh, where I was running marketing and product at Indeca at the point when we were acquired. Um, I spent the better part of a decade at Indeca, so uh, saw um, you know a pretty good run um, with that technology, with the customers, with the go-to-market. Um, prior to that, I was in uh, management consulting um, out of undergrad. Uh, I wasn't sure exactly where I wanted to focus, you know, my efforts. So management consulting is a great place to get started in terms of seeing just a pretty broad range of, uh, industries, um, you know, get involved in some operations, uh, some strategy work. And so I was at Deloitte consulting. I was in their analyst program. Uh, I left, uh, after three years to go to business school. Uh, spent two years at, uh, at Harvard Business School. Uh, and then after graduating, I thought I would uh, move into the tech space at that point. I actually had a couple of offers. I did a summer internship at uh, Real Networks in Seattle. And this was, I was the product manager for Real Jukebox. That goes back. No, it goes back, right? <laughs> Remember Real One, Real Player? Um, I mean, they really pioneered streaming. Um, but then uh, I want to do something music and technology related. And this was during the Napster craze. It was great. Um, and I was planning on uh, potentially going back there, had a couple of other offers. Uh, but it was during the time of the first dot-com bust, you know, the boom and the bust. Uh, and uh, made the decision to go back to Deloitte, take the tuition reimbursement, uh, do my time, uh, do a couple of years there. Spent three years uh, and then met Steve Papa uh, from Indeca. And as I was describing to folks when I was leaving what I was looking for uh, and kind of the type of company and type of experience I wanted, and it was in Boston, um, six or seven people said, you should meet Steve Papa from uh, from Indeca. What time was it? Now, that was 2004. That was 2004. So um, I was probably around employee number 150. So they had experienced some pretty good growth at that point. Um, but you know, we got up to about 500 or so, you know, over the, you know, over the, um, you know, over the, the, the life of, uh, over the life of the company. How had been those early years of Endeca? So 2004, 2005, 2006, if you compare to the IT industry today. Yeah. So, um, I think one of the things that was really exciting about that time at Endeca was, you know, one of the things that, that Steve, um, 
pretty, you know, pretty amazing individual has built up, you know, built up an, an amazing company at Indeca, uh, and has funded and, and, and led up some great companies since then. Um, he, one of his key skills is bringing really smart people together, right? And, and hardworking people that are passionate about what you're working on. And he has a great way of getting them passionate about his vision, right? And so, you know, the passion was palpable within the, within the company. Um, and, you know, a lot of people just kind of signed themselves over to the mission, you know, for a period of time. And we were having a lot of success. Uh, and success kind of breeds that excitement, right? And people want to win. And, 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 you know, we were clearly winning at the time, uh, because we had an innovation that nobody else could replicate, right? And so we had an advantage in the market. You know, if you went to a website in 2004 and you searched on shirt, uh, and you refined by color and brand and size, and then you removed the size filter and, uh, searched within for, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, particular logo, whatever the case may be, I promise you that was an Indeca powered site. Mm -hmm. It's now industry standard, right? That that experience is just, you know, comes for, comes for free with many, uh, with many systems at the time, we were the only one that could do it. And there's just a lot of, a uh, lot of excitement around that. And we, uh, we innovated within that experience and then, you know, built a, built a suite of, uh, uh, uh of solutions around that. That's exciting. So after you were acquired into Oracle, right? You mm -hmm. went from a 500 person company to what? How many people is 120,000? Yeah. Um, how did you approach roadmapping? Because I, I can imagine back at Indeca, it was meeting with a couple product managers, going to Steve, getting his blessing and moving on. But you know, at Oracle, you're, you're part of a much larger suite. How did you yeah. approach roadmapping? Uh, a great question. So I think the transition into Oracle, um, just at kind of a macro level perspective, um, I, initially I thought I would ride off into the sunset, get my shares vested forward. Uh, and I was advised that that was not going to happen. Um, and you know, for better or for worse, Oracle was investing in, uh, the team that I had responsibility over. Um, and, you know, frankly put me in a good position. Um, I had the opportunity to then, um, take ownership over the ATG commerce platform. And so we brought together Endeca and ATG into what we branded as the Oracle commerce solution. So I got to, you know, play around with, uh, some new technology now and, uh, ATG at the time wasn't quote unquote new technology. Uh, it was very feature rich mm -hmm. and, and stable technology. Uh, uh, but you know, that was, uh, that was exciting. So um, we're talking like 2011, we're talking, we're talking, uh, early 2012. Yeah. So I was there 2012, 2013 into a little bit of 2014. Um, from a, from a road mapping perspective, um, I think the, you know, part of the, one of the challenges was the difference between kind of the startup environment, right? Where, Hey, you're just, you're, you're just pushing ahead. You're innovating. Um, you can move, you know, you can move things quickly. You've got evolving technology. You haven't taken on a whole bunch of technical debt yet where, um, at that time, and DECA was a fairly mature product and ATG was certainly a mature product. Again, very stable, feature rich. Um, but, uh, I wouldn't call it something where we were able to move particularly fast with, right? So, um, you know, when you, when we looked at the product roadmap and things that we wanted to execute against, um, you know, one of the big considerations was understanding how long things were going to take to get done because of just all the intricacies within mm -hmm. now, uh, uh, today with, uh, with, uh, 
um, more services-based uh, approaches to technology, you know, headless commerce and being able to, uh, you know, uh, from a SaaS perspective, move on faster. That wasn't work what we were working with. Yeah, I remember as a developer, we would have a huge matrix, you know, where you'd have 40 back versions of totally of the product over the years. And, yeah. and it was very monolithic, right? It yeah. was one big box. That worked very well when you had all of it kind of put into place. Yep, exactly. But when you wanted to change something, it took a lot of time, right, to to make that change because it had implications throughout the entire code base, right? Yep. Um, uh, now uh, there there were also pet projects that um, all the way down from Larry Ellison or, or Thomas Curry and actually felt passionate about, right? That needed to make their way into the roadmap. So we needed to make room for that, whether it be some sort of fusion integration or whatever, whatever the, whatever the case may be. Um, uh, and a lot of it was just, um, you know, kind of digging in much deeper into how, what, what do we think the most valuable things are? What do we feel we, you know, we absolutely have to do from a corporate perspective, whether we like it, whether we like it or not, whether that means m- removing some technologies that we had in the code base that Oracle didn't like, mm-hmm. right? That just no, no customer cared about that. But, you know, we had to, you know, we had to, we had to do it to remediate some of the, some of the elements within the technology, balancing all that with then the time it was going to take. And, you know, that, that becomes a big part of the calculus with that big of a, you know, monolithic, uh, technology. Um, because if something's going to take me a, a sprint or two, great. And it provides value. Yeah. Let's bring it to the top of the list. If it's going to take me six months, um, that's a, you know, that's a completely different calculus, right? So that's, I felt like was, was, uh, something that, um, made it interesting. Uh, but also made it frustrating in terms of really moving as quickly as we wanted to uh, within uh, within within the product. Completely different from uh, the position you know that we're in today with Select, where you know we can make a decision this afternoon um, and have folks coding on it you know later later this evening and you know have uh, a working prototype. Uh, of it, you know, within a within a day or two. Right? And that's the world of software. Folks expect to be able to consume functionality that way and have multiple releases a day. And yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, and customers, you know, customers like that as well. As long as it's stable, right? right? And you're releasing things where it's not, you know, uh, disrupting your, you know, the availability of the solution, etc. You know, they like to see that type of speed and that type of iteration with features that they care about. Absolutely. So, how did it come that you moved on from Oracle to become the CEO of Select? So, uh, I, so I spent two and a half years at Oracle. I have zero regrets about my time at Oracle. The first, uh, you know, the first few months, you know, you feel as though if you were Larry for a day, all the changes <laughs> that you'd make uh, to the organization. But within, you know, five or six months, You realize with a company that that's big, the 120, you know, thousand people, um, you have to have processes in place, right? And you have to, um, you know, they have to have a heavily matrixed organization in many areas. All, all well and good. Um, but it's still, uh, you know, it still is, um, you know, I was, I was at the point in my career where I wanted to, I wanted to innovate faster, right? And I wanted to, uh, I had been, um, You know, I'd been on the, the management consulting side. I had been at a growth stage company uh, in terms of Indeca. I'd been at now Oracle, you know, for a few years. I wanted to do something very early, right? I wanted to start something. And, so you know, how did you find the opportunity now? So, yeah, I, I talked to actually a bunch of folks. I spent uh, I spent a couple of weeks in a in a room with a whiteboard with uh, with the with another individual. And we talked about actually starting 
uh, a company, um, which I actually thought would have been really interesting. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure uh, if I could view parallel paths, I'd love mm-hmm. to see how that path would have uh, would have gone. So I think it was some, you know, really interesting idea. Would be the um, best way of A-B testing. Would be awesome. <laughs> making, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, Steve Papa actually introduced me to uh, Vivek and Devavrat, who are the two MIT professors who uh, they'd been collaborating on a lot of research for the better part of a decade. They had you know, gone through the PhD program at Stanford together. Then they both got tenured professorships or professorship job now tenured at, uh, at MIT. Um, and uh, when I met them, you know, having built uh, and sold product into commerce, into commerce and retail, you know, B2B, B2C for the previous 15 years. Um, and knowing what was on retailers roadmaps, talking to retailers about where, you know, what the future looked like, where they were investing. Um, uh, and, uh, also having a wife who is in retail. She's a VP of planning at TJX. She's been at Staples. She's been at CVS, right? And seeing how she does her job and how decisions are made. Um, and understanding enough the underlying science behind what these guys had, I just got really excited about it. And it's kind of like, why, why would I, uh, why would I, you know, go off and spend two years trying to build something when they already have the, you know, they had a couple of beta customers at the time. And so I, I worked with them in an advisory role for a little while while, you know, some things were vesting at Oracle. Um, and then in the August of 2014 timeframe, made the decision to join on with them full time as CEO. Uh, they uh, had taken some angel investment dollars, but then uh, some friends and family, but then had decided to, um, you know, begin to do a series A raise. So they would go out, they would talk to a handful, uh, you know, they were talking to a handful of VCs and part of their pitch was, and we're, you know, first order of business, hire a CEO and this is our guy. Uh, and then I would meet with the VC. Uh, so I wasn't doing the pitches with them. I was helping them on the, you know, on the, on the overall pitch, but then I would meet with the VC. Um, and, uh, that's when we raised our series A with August capital. And I joined on a week or two after that actually, uh, that actually closed. Very interesting. Hey, what are some key stats? So before we get into the tech, so yep. how, how big were you based? Yep. Uh, yep. What rounds have you raised? Things yep. like that. Yep. So, uh, with AMIT roots based out of Boston. Um, with tech focused on, you know, commerce and retail, there's actually a great community in the Boston area with Indeca coming oh, yeah. out of there. Boston's famous for yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Demandware, ATG, Indeca, um, yeah, some, and then the, 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 all of the technologies and companies that have now flowered from, uh, those, you know, the people who came through the doors at, mm-hmm. uh, at uh, those areas. So based out of Boston, um, uh, we have raised, uh, uh, three rounds of financing. We did a $5 million series A, a $10 million series B and a $15 million series C, which we just, uh, recently closed on the, the last part of it within the last few months at the latter part of 20, uh, the latter part of 2018. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of employees, we're in the 55 to 60 or so range, uh, right now, um, you know, growing, uh, with that, uh, you know, our, 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 uh, our cash, our, you know, OPEX is, is growing, but, you know, seeing that revenue grow alongside of that is, is nice. Um, you know, high, high single digits in terms of ARR is kind of what we're seeing from a, from a revenue perspective right now and, and looking to, See that grow, uh, you know, significantly. Still, still in a phase of uh, the law of small numbers, right? Where we can see good percentage growth year over year, uh, year over year within that as well. 
Yeah, congrats on, on that. This is so far, I think, a great entrepreneurial success story. So uh, it's, it's great to hear uh, yeah, how business is, is evolving. So yeah, compliments not, from, from our side. Thanks. Thanks. Not easy getting a company off the ground, as you guys uh, as you guys. Well, well there are always ups and downs, right? Yeah. And once you solve one thing, another comes uh, through the door um, yeah. that you did not expect. So I think that's yeah, yeah. That's but part, of, part but, of the game. But seen some good success, which is nice. So let's talk a little bit more about the problem that you are solving. So yeah. what is Select actually doing? Yeah. So uh, at the core, right, we are a uh, predictive analytics uh, and optimization technology platform. Right, with core elements of AI, machine learning, obviously underlying what we're doing. Um, right around the time when the company was founded, MIT CSAIL, the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT, celebrated 50 years of existence. Right, And as part of the celebration for the lab, um, they put together a list of the top 50 technological innovations ever to come out of MIT. And on that list are things like the digital computer, ARPANET, the precursor to the internet, nuclear fission, um, Akamai, right, commercially successful company, the CDN, uh, iRobot, military-grade robots in the room of vacuum cleaners, and Select is on that list as well, right? And the reason I bring that up is, you know, one, the, the team's proud of it. Two, it got the, the guys to really kind of push the technology into the commercial space more aggressively and really kind of uh, pushing the, the founding of the company. Three, I think it, it talks to the seriousness of the underlying technology behind what we're doing, right? Um, and where we focused that core tech is uh, around this idea of inventory optimization, right? So helping retailers identify which products to bring into inventory, how much of those products in what, uh, in what assortment, in what quantities, and then how do you push those products out uh, to get them as close to where the demand is for those products at the right time for when customers are experiencing that demand, right, or demanding that demand. Uh, and uh, when you think about inventory, right, from a retail context, it is, it's the most fundamental task a retailer has, right, is identifying what they should have, what products they should have in inventory, right, and, and meeting the demand for customers. Um, the way that this problem is solved today is largely, and, and we've had a lot of success within fashion and apparel, right, uh, uh, apparel footwear. Um, and so the way the decision made there is very much based on gut instinct and Excel spreadsheets, right? Or printed out <laughs> reports, right? And looking at high level backwards looking data. Hey, we sold, we were up 3% last year. Let's try to be up 5% this year, right? Or we sold 10,000 of these last year. Maybe we can sell 12,000 of a similar type style this upcoming year, right? Those are how those decisions are made. When you actually are able to uh, uncensored demand, right? So not just looking at what happened in the past, because you may have had, you know, 10,000 of the shirt, Dirk, that you're wearing uh, in inventory last year. And in a particular store, you had 100 in stock, you sold all 100. Did you nail it? Was was that demand exactly 100? Congratulations, right? Or could you have sold 200 or 1,000, right? You don't know, right, at that point. The way that we look at the data and based on understanding customer choice, and context of a customer's decision. We can uncensor that demand to say, hey, what was the true demand for that product, right? Based on understanding not just what the customer bought, but also looking at what was available to them when they made that selection, right? What were their options? Said another way, what, what didn't they buy when they, when they bought that product? In this context of that decision, based on what somebody bought and what was in inventory, you go online, you look at five product detail pages, but they put two, you know, put two of them in your shopping cart. There's context everywhere, right? And looking at that 
And using that to now build out a model allows us to answer the question, not just what did somebody buy, but rather what would somebody prefer to buy if given the choice across an assortment of products. So now we have a model that allows us to 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 really uncensored demand, take trend information into account, and also understanding how products interact with each other. Right? What is you know what what's what's the impact of another shirt that's of a similar style in a particular location on the assortment around it? Right? When do you have diminishing returns for particular types of products? So by understanding that demand. You now have a model for predicting demand at a localized level that you, you know, can use to help make decisions kind of through the product life cycle. But then also you need to optimize on it because you have constraints. Retailers only have so much money to put into inventory. Retailers only have so much space within a particular store. So with that prediction of demand and that optimization, we're help, we're, we're able to help customers through this, the full product life cycle through kind of the planning phases, you know, assortment management, the buying side, how much should they buy, allocation, where should they allocate things. And then every one of our customers is doing ship from store, right? But the problem is, how do you decide which store to ship a product from so that you're not pulling the, the, the product out of a store where the customer is, uh, where the customer, you're going to have demand in store for that product. So a lot of decisions can, we can help and optimize with through that full product life cycle. And I still can't believe, for the life of me, that retailers do this on their own. Mm-hmm. And but I've seen it though. I've seen it personally, um, both working with retailers, but also from a consumer. You walk into many stores, mm-hmm. and it, they're just completely missing products in your yeah. size or your yeah. color or whatever it happens to be. So I uh, I applaud you for taking on yeah. this uh, this challenge. And it's not it's not an easy problem to ch- it's not an easy you know problem to solve, yeah. right? Which is why. Um, you know, I feel like we've got a, a good advantage here with the, the, the tech we have and, and some of the success that we've had. Um, uh, but, you know, I think the you know, the results speak for themselves. And, and frankly, the omni-channel challenge of all this has made it even more challenging for retailers. Yeah. Because if you think about what's in a store, right? Somebody might be on their phone, on the bus, coming home from work, searching, and then, you know, they see something they like. They get off the bus, there's a store. They want to walk in. It should be in that store. Right. And so even though they have access to more products online, you need to understand the localized demand. So you have a better chance of having that product localized. Somebody wants to buy online, pick up in store. You have to have it in the store. You have this lever of ship from store so that you can choose to uh, decide where you want to ship a product from to optimize inventory in season. Right. All of this complexity from an omnichannel perspective makes it harder. Right. But also makes the store an even more important asset for retailers to get right along with their fulfillment center to optimize kind of that inventory across the full life cycle. So something um, we've been seeing a lot of is ship from store. Yeah. But I know that that can be expensive. Mm-hmm. So what's the balance and what are some of the cost considerations of pulling inventory from a physical store versus a centralized warehouse? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, there's, there's a, you know, there's, it's cheaper generally right to to pick and pack and ship from a a, a centralized dc now um uh, on the on the other side of that right the cost of a uh of a stock out in a store trumps everything right that's sin number one if you have demand for a product at full price a customer walking into the store and it's not available to them that's bad Right. That's the whole that, premise of retail, right? That there, is the right? whole premise of retail. So um, have it in the store for crying out loud, right? And so one way to do that is to push more of your inventory into the store, 
and then put infrastructure around um, uh, around the the store that lowers the price, uh, the cost in terms of shipping it from a store. Right? You've got downtime for some of your employees in the store, and you can make it easy for them to be able to to, to pick and pack certain certain products. One one question directly related sure. to that. So I, I think we all agree in that round here on that. This is that this is absolutely necessary, but. Yep. When I look at the retail landscape, yep. I too little see that actually happening um, yet. So I, I see the huge demand for that, but actually most brands ship from ship from store. Yeah, and uh, right availability management and so on. So in your role, um, how much education do you still have to do on a sales side when you talk to these brands and retailers that they really need to improve on that side? So how much do they understand that yeah. this is something where they that should have happened yesterday? Yeah. Um, but they are looking for, okay, yes, we know that we have to do something there, but they are not moving forward. Um, the, the difference between two and a half to three years ago to today is striking, right? The, the, like we're, we're now seeing RFPs for these, for the, these capabilities. This was, it was more of an evangelical sell a couple of, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, right? Where we, listen, there's so much low hanging fruit in terms of optimizing a ship from store strategy to optimize your inventory, uh, that the, the numbers just speak for them. The numbers just speak for themselves, right? It's not that expensive to do it well. Uh, but you need to, you need to be making the right decisions in terms of understanding that localized demand, right? And, and, and where to, uh, where to pull, uh, where to pull those products from. So the difference, it, it, listen, we're, 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 we're clearly, uh, you know, to what we were talking about earlier, Kelly, uh, Kelly we're, we're clearly crossing the chasm in terms of uh, it just being early adopters to this is now uh, an understood and clear set of capabilities that retailers need to be managing. Right. And, and especially with um, online sales increasing. Costs are increasing as well, right? Because of the shipping costs related to that. We, we work with a lot of uh, footwear customers where customers, customers, uh, their customers order two or three pairs, knowing full well they're going to return two of them, right? They have stores that have negative revenue, right? Wow. They basically serve as return centers. Now, that's actually not a bad thing for them, right? Because they're still driving revenue and they're getting people into the store and maybe they're buying a belt or they're buying accessories or another shoe while they're there. It's driving that, you know, it's driving that traffic. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that they need to be able to, uh, they need to be able to, uh, address from a cost perspective. Yeah. And, you know, on that topic, um, I've noticed that many retailers have many different single sources of truth, right? Yeah. If, if that, that contradiction makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, Target famously went from 11 different systems to track inventory. So you, you didn't know exactly which one you had to hit and yeah. there were rules about which one you had to hit. Um, and they consolidated that down to one, yeah. which is great. Yeah. But you look across the rest of retail and it's still so dysfunctional. There's so many legacy systems. It's yeah. all batch feeds. Um, why is it that retailers are so slow And why have they not caught up? I mean, you would think this is a core part of their business. You'd think everybody would want a single source of truth for all of these important bits of data, but it just doesn't exist. And why is that? It's, you know, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's a great question. I, and honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the, I don't know what the answer is in terms of like exactly why, but I, I, I will say this with a lot of the larger customers that we have, 
sometimes within a particular division or department, it's just easier for them to solve the, the particular problem that they're dealing with. And sometimes it just means, um, you know, creating a mirror of the source of that truth that then grows like a weed in that new system, right? So they're just trying to move quickly. Uh, they don't want to get bogged down with uh, the logistics of kind of a, a, a global corporate data governance um, techno- uh, uh, um, project, right? That being said, I think one of the things that that I'm seeing right now is when you when you're looking at things like advanced analytics, right, and AI, and how you can use your data in a more efficient manner. Um, we're seeing that drive some really nice practices from a data governance perspective, where customers begin and retailers are beginning to think about their data. Um, in a much more structured manner, right? Uh, and that comes in a couple uh, instances. One, they're feeding data, right? Uh, their data to a number of different service providers, like SaaS-based service providers. And so consolidating that into having one source of the truth that they can pull from benefits them from an operational perspective, right? So there's that operational benefit there. Um, two is they're never going to have perfect data. They're never going to have perfectly attributed data. They're never going to have perfectly clean data. And it's going to take a while to get to that one source of truth. But what the analytics initiatives are doing is helping them prioritize what are the most important elements of data. And obviously focus on inventory optimization, um, a, a, a true and consistent view of inventory is a really valuable is a really valuable one. The other one I will say is uh, product attribute information that's consistent season over season um, and uh, is uh, attributed as early in the process as possible, uh, particularly when you're trying to use that information to predict uh, demand, you know, potentially two or three seasons down the road. Speaking about your tech, uh, some of your IP is, as you already mentioned, coming from MIT. Mm -hmm. um, how, how does that actually work out uh, from a let's say partnership perspective, yep. but also from a commercial perspective? Yeah, um, it's a great question. The, the um, MIT has actually been a, uh, a great partner in terms of um, and partnering with their faculty uh, to get the technology that is born out of MIT into the commercial space, right? So um, they're not giving it away, right? But they're also trying to remove barriers to get that technology out into the commercial space. So, you know, MIT has, you know, some, so, uh, you know, small stake, uh, from an ownership perspective within the company as part of the, as part of the deal we have uh, with them. And we have exclusive rights to the technology that, uh, you know, our, our co-founders worked on in the very early, you know, in the early days, uh, that they were working, uh, that they were working on this. Now, um, we have uh, a whole, you know, additional pa uh, patent portfolio that is owned exclusively by Sel uh, Select. Uh, but we have the license to that, uh, to that technology out of MIT. And MIT has been a, um, has, you know, been a great partner for us. And I think it's important for them as an institution and even just on the, you know, on the, on the global stage to be viewed as, um, you know, an institution competitively with other institutions out there where they're competing for students, they're competing for faculty talent, right? To be, you know, to, 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 to be helpful to the faculty and to students to get that technology out there. And I, I think the famous MIT license in software is 
reflective of their desire to get things out there. Right on. I mean, you don't see a Stanford license or, I mean, no offense to Stanford, but you know, (laughs) uh, it's only MIT. So it's interesting. So how is Boston? We talked about this just a little bit before, but you know, how does Boston compare to say New York or Bay area, just in terms of talent, um, fundraising, um, you know, give us your general impression of that. So I think from a, from a, uh, a retail and commerce perspective, um, I think there is a, there is a tremendous community in the Boston area, right? So, um, uh, for that particular sector, um, I think it's a great place to be. I think it's a great place to be located. Um, obviously biotech in Boston is huge, right? And, and, and growing significantly. So there's a great biotech community, uh, in, uh, in, in the Boston area. I think historically Boston has been viewed as kind of the old guard. Right. With Wang and Deck, right. Digital Equipment Corp. And, um, you know, some, some, some very large early successful companies on, you know, what's referred to as the 128 loop, right. Just outside of, uh, just outside of Boston. Um, you know, that being said, uh, you know, listen, Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley in the Bay Area is, it's, it's Silicon Valley, right. And there's, you know, there's a lot of innovation going on out there. Um, uh, I, I think Boston second, to Silicon Valley has, you know, some of the, 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 the best, um, uh, startup and, and innovation, uh, innovation scene. I think a big part of that as well is, there's the, um, you know, you've got MIT, Harvard, um, uh, BU, BC, you've got some great universities in the area that kind of feed folks to, uh, in, in the space. Um, there's some great VCs. Uh, in the area. Um, I think still though, a lot of folks and we've, you know, we've raised, uh, out of New York and we've raised with three other investors out of California. Um, uh, and we just found the, the investors out of the West Coast to be a bit more flexible in terms of what we were, you know, what we were looking to do. Um, uh, and, you know, but I would have loved to have had somebody in the, and there are some, you know, I have some friends who are, you know, very successful investor, you know, VCs in the Boston area and would love to see that community continue to, uh, continue to grow, right. And do some, you know, make some really, uh, some, some, some nice investments in the Boston area. And always has been, uh, the, the center in the U S for, for online retail, right? So you already mentioned yep. it, uh, demand where ATG and DECA. So yep. a lot of stuff actually started, started initially and grew there. So, and then you've got, so, uh, Stefan from, uh, demand where, right. Inner shop is now, fi- he's found a new store out of the Boston, you know, in, in doing that, uh, a, a big chunk of it out of the Boston area. Um, uh, there's uh, Salsify, which is product content management, product experience management. Uh, that came uh, Jason Purcell, uh, Jeremy Redburn, Rod Gonzalez out of Vendeca. Um, Toast, which is a restaurant, so still element of retail, um, having tremendous amount of success. Actually, Steve Papa um, was uh, is chairman of the board there, one of the early uh, investors there, lead investor. Um, so, from those technology, those companies, those technology companies, uh, have, uh, sprouted a lot of new technology, uh, companies in the, in the space as well. Awesome. Unfortunately, we're getting to the end of the time. So everybody needs to get back to shop talk. Uh, John, thank you so much for being with us on yep. the episode. I hope everybody who was listening in enjoyed it. Uh, wish you a great show, great success here at shop talk. Yep. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to what's happening next at select. Thanks. This thank was you. a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John. Awesome.